Do you think that if you were falling in space, that you would slow down after a while or go faster and faster? Faster and faster. And for a long time, you wouldn't feel anything. And then you'd burst into fire. Forever. And the angels wouldn't help you. they've all gone away. Hello, listening people. Hello. I knew you were going to do something. <laughs> I knew you were going to... I was actually going to say, Bartek, we should have learned how to say uh, things backwards and then I imposed... Hello <laughs> isn't the f- only thing that I prepared, so <laughs> keep going. So, hello, listening people. I am one of your hosts, Ryan Swinsky. Yeah, um... Good enough. That's as much as I've practiced. Practice. practice and if I rewind it in the audio, it won't sound anything like how you practice it. Oh. Um, so we are spin Polish, like only because we're always spitting, and we both happen to be Polish. Bartek, you got one for that? Ubi Gubi Gwanza. Yes. So we are doing a show Pictures Power, the show in which we cover a movie that has come highly recommended, whether the recommendation is from myself or Bartek or you, the listening people. This week it was a recommendation from myself. From Rai Rai. Uh, we are doing the 1990... Is it two? I was going to say 1992 uh, film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. We're not doing the missing pieces, which is its own separate thing. Uh, just to get a bit of housework out of the way, we are going to be talking about this movie in depth, so spoilers ahead, and in doing so, this is a prequel to the TV series that originally aired uh, the first two seasons, so we will be mentioning some elements from that show, which mm-hmm. obviously the movie itself spoils because this is a prequel to a murder mystery show. Yep. So we see the murder. There's a moment where it literally mentions something from the very last episode. Of so <laughs> if you have not watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, I would say watch it, but definitely, definitely, definitely do not watch it if you have not seen Twin Peaks the show. The first two seasons in specific, because this will be, some elements will be lost. Some people disagree with me. Some people think this has enough of a standalone thing, but I I... think you will benefit from watching this. And if you are at all interested in watching the show, definitely do not watch this movie before going into the show, because there's going to be a lot of stuff that just deflates. When I was Googling about this film, I came across an article that was talking about how you should start with this movie. And it, no. and, it, and it like straight up listed, like, I know that's a controversial opinion, but for this reason and this reason and this reason, you should start They're with wrong. this. They uh, were wrong because one thing they said was that like the first season and a half is amazing and then it goes to shit. So because it mm. goes to shit, skip the amazing stuff or something. Yeah, dumbasses. So uh, we will be talking about that. Another piece of housework stuff is I will only mention briefly some some basic elements of the follow-up season, Twin Peaks, The Return, or The Revival, whatever, the third season. Bartek has not seen that. Yeah. So I will try to talk about that in a non-spoilery type of way, but I do have to bring it up because this movie gets very much recontextualized because of that series. 
but I won't delve too difficult into that in case you're curious, just because Bartek hasn't seen it, and in case you haven't seen it, but yeah. uh, it's so been if, out for like four years. So if you're listening to this and you hear Ryan talking, there's a chance he might slip, so cover your ears, but if I'm talking, listen, because I can't. <laughs> listen! So, history with Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. I've seen this movie movie before, I've seen it many a times. I watched it after having watched the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was obviously before the new series had started. So I didn't know that there was ever going to be any continuation from this. So yeah. this was like the last piece of Twin Peaks media. And me being me, I've only ever watched this series, then movie. I never just go movie, then series. I've, I've never been like that. I, I mentioned that in our Star Wars episode in which... Uh, you're talking about if you're going to watch the full If like, I'm actually going to sit down... I've watched the movie just on its own. Yeah, that's But what uh, I've never... I never do that. I don't get any satisfaction out of doing that. Like, when Better Call Saul finishes, I will watch Breaking Bad, then do Better Call Saul. Like, that's just me. I'm very much like, I like to watch things in the release date order. Mm. I know people aren't always like that. There's always people with machete cuts and da-da-da-da-da, but I am very much like that. So that's kind of my history. I've seen the show as well. Just talk about history with the show. I've seen the show, love the show, watched it at a very young age, appreciated it, watched it at an older age, appreciated it a lot more, and I have a great affinity towards it. Bartek, what is your history with Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me and the show? Sorry, jumping back to what you just said about your history, didn't you tell me last week that you first watched Twin Peaks in university? I watched... Okay, so I watched all of Twin Peaks... During my university years, I had watched some of Twin Peaks oh, as a, as a in my piece. high school, like, you know, like 14, 15. Right, right. But it was one of those things where it's just like uh, I didn't have a full copy of it because right. it was a little hard to get at the time uh, in Australia. So I'd seen it. I knew of elements of it, you know, and also in pop culture, you kind of, without knowing it, you know stuff from Twin Peaks. Like Bartek, you, you, you can discuss some of that for yourself with your history. Yes, yeah, so... I think month and a bit ago, it was literally the night that I watched Jack and Jill for the show. I was talking to Ryan, <laughs> and he was saying, like, I want to do Twin Peaks Fire Walk Me at some point, but it would be pointless if you haven't seen Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And I told him, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about it, and I've been meaning to check it out at some point. So Ryan grasped on my, my enthusiasm there and lent me his DVD copies of the first two seasons. And I got through them pretty quickly. I think within yeah. two weeks, I finished it all. Yeah. And like part of the gap there was that I finished the first season quickly and had to wait to come back to his house to get the other one. Because the first season is only eight episodes. Yeah. Um. So I I watched it pretty recently again, shortly after we did Jack and Jill and whatever came after that. Yeah. Um. And I enjoyed it quite a lot. And after I finished season two, I had to wait a while until we could do this again because i think like a couple weeks i think i literally finished season two after you had announced your previous pick for this show so i'm like well i gotta wait three weeks now and yeah uh so when you finally did announce it last week i uh i even watched it a bit earlier usually i watch it the night before Mm. i watched it like three nights ahead of time uh because i was curious to see how it plays out because ryan has uh has built up uh, future things that I'm going to see from Twin Peaks. So I've got some stuff 
yeah. I'm looking forward to in the revival season. Uh, I see. I've seen this film now, and I understand quite a few things. You're saying like some people don't like this. Some people fucking hate this, <laughs> and it's a prequel. That's yeah. just like you have to let people. Some I feel like it's right if you let people know who know nothing about Twin Peaks biography. Please let them know it's a prequel because people <laughs> I know who have watched it didn't know that, and oh. they fucking despise everything about this movie. But but Heather Graham's there. Heather guys. Graham is there. So before we actually talk about what we th- thought about this movie upon this watch and your first watch of it Mm -hmm. there is that thing of this movie is very much maligned or was it's kind of had a turnaround over since the revival came out and even before that but it was one of david lynch's most despised films even from his diehard fans from fans of the show itself and from just general audiences i've never felt that way i will say this the first viewing of it i didn't know it was a prequel But I did have a feeling it wasn't going to be a satisfying, happy-go-lucky conclusion of the show because I'm aware of who David Lynch is. (laughs) And I've also watched the show, in which the show itself is conceded at the point of they were never going to solve this mystery. That was never the point. And the point was it would just continue on about these characters. There was never going to be that happy, satisfying, everyone's all happy at the end because it's David Lynch, and that was never the point of the show. And even if you don't know that, you can just if you've watched the show... You understand that if you're keen-eyed, right? If you watch the show, you just know that things are going to be miserable at a certain point if it continued on. But as it's going, there are very much a lot of chipper chipper moments. But ironically, chipper. (laughs) Yeah. But I was frustrated on my first viewing, but that was it. Like, I was only mildly frustrated, and it was a frustration that was, for me, by design Mm. from the movie. And then on subsequent viewings, I have fallen in love with this movie, and it's probably one of my favorite David Lynch films. Have you? Have you? Um, because you meant you've seen this multiple times. Mm. Uh, what's happening? No, 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 no. <laughs> I want to ask, and just finding the phrasing regarding the third season. Had you watched it multiple times before the third season existed? Yeah, yeah. I've only watched it once since the third season, and that was for this. Okay, okay. Because with Twin Peaks, for me and this movie, they're very much mood pieces, and you can only watch... Like, I'm not re-watching them every year, like I would say Star Trek or other things, because it's a fucking depressing world. Like, this girl gets murdered, and everyone's fucking sad. Like, there's chipper stuff, like we said, but it's a... It's an anxiety-filled nightmare world, and that's mm. David Lynch, and um, that's that's kind of it. But yeah, a lot of people have hated this. A person we know in our lives is a big Twin Peaks fan, and they have never seen Twin Peaks Firewalk with me because their partner hates it, and they say, don't watch it, there's no point. Then they watch the third season, this friend we know, and they loved it. And I just said, you need to watch the movie then, because this movie is what the show, the third season, is getting a lot from, more so than the original show. Yeah, but. as someone who hasn't seen the third season, I've watched this movie, and I'm like, holy shit, they've introduced a lot of things mm. that haven't fully been explained, and if the third season is focusing on these things, mm. you'd probably want the first piece of these things, <laughs> yeah. as in see this movie. Well, we'll see how you feel about that at some point down the road, but it's yeah. more like tonal stuff is mm. what this is like, The this is yeah. kind I, of I will learning. say, I will say this movie was a lot more like what I thought the first two seasons was going to be. Right. Yeah. So, tell me, Bartek, yes. what did you think of this movie? How did you feel? Uh, having watched it a few days in advance, when I finished it, I'm like, should I see this again before? <laughs> 
before we do the show. I've done that with some in the past. I was seriously considering it, but I was just too tired last night. Um, mm. I I can definitely see why it's it's contentious. I don't I don't hate it. I definitely want to see it again at some point because mm. I feel like yeah, this is probably the point where David Lynch. Uh, I don't want to say stepped up because that implies things about the first two seasons, but uh, from what I understand, this is where he starts putting in a lot of his super well-known Lynchianisms, Lynchisms, or I, 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 I can see that point. But I may disagree with you on this, but go on. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of iffy on it, but like, there, there's a lot more vague things in this than there mm. was in the first two seasons. Like when I, again, when I said that I thought the first two scenes were going to be a lot more like this. When I finished the first season, I was like, I, I, this, this made a lot of sense. There were only like two really weird things, and that was um, dreams, the dream sequence, and who is this figure that the Palmer family keeps seeing that no yeah. one can see? Is this like hallucination? And yeah, and that's like yeah, the first eight episodes. That's a that's a, like a fraction of the first two seasons. Mm. Second season obviously steps it up a little bit more. I keep saying step up. You uh, love the step up movies. <laughs> I haven't it, seen a single man, one. Man, if David Lynch directed a step up movie, how fucking great would that be? He loves dancing in his movies. <laughs> yes, and he can get Ray Wise. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would fucking kill if Step Up, whatever the number they're up to, was directed by David Lynch and the main character who's stepping up from the hood to become a dance lord <laughs> is fucking Ray Wise. Who are the main actors in the Step Up films? Wasn't, um, wasn't Channing Tatum in those? Was he? I will say Maybe. yes. Go on. Next so week you... we're doing Step Up 1. Step, Step Up, Up, Up 1. <laughs> um... Yeah, so I thought that the first scenes were going to be a lot more like this. Uh, so when I, it finally did become a bit more like this, I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this mm. is interesting." There's a lot of a uh, lot more to think about. I think not to say that the first two seasons didn't have a lot to think about, but yeah, yeah. I, I I enjoyed it, and I'm definitely keen to check it out again at some point. Yeah, oh, I'm I'm excited. I had a feeling that you may not have liked this movie because. Sometimes it's hard to read you, and especially last night I got a message from Bartek in reply to my message about, like, don't check out the spoiler section of the trivia because it kind of gives away things that get explored later. Technically, it doesn't actually give away anything, but it's kind of like genesis points of ideas that blossom into different ideas, and you're like, ah, you can, you don't need that. But Bartek was just, like, made some offhand comment about, like, yeah, yeah, that fleeting quick mentions to brand things of the Twin Peaks show or whatever and I'm like I don't know what this comment is meaning is he not liking the movie we'll find out tomorrow I don't know I don't rem- I, all um, I remember saying was oh I forgot to look at the trivia no did I no. say something else you said something else like oh yeah something about like the show like the movie only makes like quick off-handed references to brand elements of the show and I'm like oh well, he wanted more cherry pies and coffee no um but I, I think I think all I said was what I what I said earlier was uh you know it introduces elements mm. that are new that's all, i think that's definitely what I meant. Yeah. um and it reinforces some old elements but bartek mm-hmm. what is your history with david lynch as a filmmaker and an individual do you have one and do you have any viewpoints on him if you do have one i think before twin peaks i'd only seen blue velvet but i knew of his legacy you haven't it- seen elephant man no, I actually didn't know he made... I knew of Elephant mm-hmm. Man, I didn't know he made it. People I, forget that. I actually thought it was like a super, super old film, but no. No, no it's a David Lynch, like... It's his second film, after Racerhead. <laughs> and I, Mel Brooks produced it. 
oh wow <laughs> yeah 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 no i really thought it was like many decades older than that but yeah um i, I know of the line from that film yes i'm not an animal i'm yeah. a human being guys chill yeah 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 um yeah so i, I knew that he was a, a weird filmmaker and in in like the past year and a bit i've been getting a bit more into some like you know weirder stuff so i i definitely he's on my radar to check out more stuff mm. from and having watched twin peaks and fire walk with me where it got really weird you know yeah starting to like get there so my history with him is i've seen pretty much most of his films i there's maybe a couple i haven't seen like i i don't think i've seen inland empire which is a notorious one that's like nearly four hours long and he shot it on in like a consumer grade sd camera and it's like a fucking nightmare you recently put a short film on netflix oh yes i, I watched that it was very weird and funny but uh, <laughs> it's him interviewing a monkey but either way yeah no i've been meaning to check that out um i the weird thing with me with david lynch is on paper he is a director that i would not like mm. his films like i like arty films sure but a lot of his stuff on paper would seem like they would rub me up the wrong way. A lot of pretentious for pretentious sake, a lot of imagery for imagery's sake. I like characters, I like rules, I like plots. David Lynch isn't interested in those things as strongly as other storytellers. Not saying he doesn't have an interest, he does. Mm. But they're very unconventional. Um, but for some reason, I, I love that I love his films. I don't. I wouldn't say I'm a David Lynch fanboy necessarily, but I, I, they resonate with me in a way that other films don't. I find David Lynch himself a very fascinating individual, as do most people. Whether you're finding frustrating or not, he's a fascinatingly weird guy. I actually think I understand him when he talks about his process and his films and his storytelling and dreams and stuff. Like, to me, what he says makes sense. Like, I've shared clips to Bartek about, like, him talking about, like, the eye, the hole of a donut and, like, yeah, this. And he has the, the whole thing. One. And he has another one about the eye of the duck. And I sit there going, oh, I understand what he's saying here. Or I at least get an under my own understanding There's of it. There's something here, yeah. It's not just he's a crazy man. I respect the fact that he has the strong belief point of the film should speak for itself. You ask him a question about the film, he probably won't tell you an answer. Or he'll agree with whatever you think it is. Most of the time. He said stuff like, A Race Ahead is my most romantic movie. Then asked, can you elaborate on that? No. And I respect that because there's so many films that get too explained. And that can be a bit annoying. Like, you see those YouTube videos that are like, The ending of... Let me explain the ending of this movie. And you're like, oh, okay, like, where's the ambiguity? Where's everyone's interpretations? Like, there's going to be many things that we talk about in this. Well, I've watched this film multiple times, and you could ask me a question of what happened, and what does this mean in Twin Peaks Firewalk with me? And I don't know. I don't know. But it made me feel something in a certain way, and that's mm. what I can tell you. And and that's the kind of thing where usually that could be frustrating for me. And I imagine that's frustrating for a lot of people. David Lynch, although a critical darling, is someone who's very alienating to people. I find him funny. I think he's got a great say, sense of humor. That's something that you haven't brought up yet. But here's the thing, Bartek. When you said this film has a lot more of Lynchisms, I think I disagree in one way. The first half hour does, then the rest of the movie is like a nightmare in a different Lynch way. So the first half hour of this movie is very confusing for people, if you have not seen this movie before, where it's like the first half hour you're following these two other detectives... 
and they're in Deer Meadow, and they're investigating the first murder, and it's like a bizarro Twin Peaks world where everyone's an arsehole. Instead of like the happy R&R diner, you have haps. And it's like, and then the story ends, and then it goes eventually to the actual story of Laura Laura Palmer. And you go, what was that first part there for a lot of people ask? I will say, two things I knew about this film walking in, oh, it's going to look at the investigation of that first murder and it's going to show Laura Palmer's, you know, last week alive. And that's what it showed me, but it was yes. done in an odd way. <laughs> and there's this film is flawed. Very flawed. I am going to definitely say that right now. Even as a fan, this is a very flawed film. There's issues I have with this film, obviously. But yes, I think the first half hour where he's doing the Deer Meadow stuff, where he's doing like the bizarre Twin Peaks and there's that kind of humour... That's more Lynchian to me, where he's doing this bizarre humor and irony and this, this. A lot of people think David Lynch has too much of an ironic detachment from his own work, where he's showing you something horrific, but he's doing it in an ironic and detached manner. Like, Blue Velvet gets a lot of that, in which Roger Ebert was like, he's, ex- he's sexually exploiting his actresses and whatnot. And then Isabella Rossellini's like, I'm fine. I'm not, I wasn't exploited. And, and there's some fair marks to say that i i don't feel like that i feel like david lynch does have a real attachment to the characters and to the stories he just presents them in an odd manner but i gotta say for me out of all of his work i think this is the one in which you as the audience and him as the filmmaker is the most emotionally resonant of his movies i feel so bad for laura palmer in this fucking movie (laughs) I feel so sorry for her. I feel so bad for her. That comes down to the performance as well. When I, when I was reading about the reception of this film, there was a lot of mentions of this film was popular in Japan, but one place where it, it went a bit more into that was uh, Japanese women were mm. really into this film because of they, they identified with like Laura's yeah. struggles mm. in like the society she lived in. So this film has a lot of elements of David Lynch stuff like weird dreams and we live inside a dream and David Bowie turns up and like all this weird editing choices. But I, I, I think more is why well, I don't say I fully agree with it. It's a lot more Lynchian in terms of on the emotional resonance, he is far more clear cut. The story is very, very clear when you break it down. Yeah. This is about a girl who's suffering from abuse and the way that she's struggling with it is very, very real, real. Like it feels very real. Like her mood swings and the way that she's pushing people away and pulling them in. She doesn't want them to get hurt, but also she does because, you know, she's going through all this stuff. She wants people to feel what she... It's very clear cut of, like, the girl in her final days discovering her dad is an abuser, and then she dies. It's very clear cut. While something like Elephant Man is clear cut too, but then you have something like Eraserhead, where people still debate what the fuck that movie's about Mm. to this day. Is it about being a dad for the first time? Who knows? Is it about working in an eraser factory? Who knows? Like... David Lynch won't tell you. And, but for me, I think for Lynchian atmosphere, this is very just clear cut and dry. He presents it in an odd manner, of course. Lots of cross dissolves. <laughs> Too many for my liking. So, Bartek, as someone who has seen the show and now has watched this... Has seen the show up to this... Movie, can yeah. you... How did you... So how did you fare with the thing? I, you had some preparation, but how did you fare knowing what the show was like and then this? Like, did you kind of wish it was more in line with the show? Did you kind of wish that you had Coop being Coop? Because he's not really Coop in this. Yeah, like, did you want that kind of 
fanny, not fan service, but did you want that satisfaction? Uh, I, I, in terms of, because cause, uh, the main character of Twin Peaks, well, I mean, it's hard to say main character, but I, I guess... The yeah, he's the main, Dale yeah. Cooper's the main character. Yeah, so Cooper, he is in this film for almost five minutes, I'd say. Five, five, seven Five, minutes. almost five. Um, and he plays it fairly differently from on the show. Mm. I reckon just in those scenes, if he played it a bit more like he was in the show. But, I mean, for the tone of the film, I guess it's fine. He has his little coop moments where it's like, uh, the trailer's not that way, it's this way. And he yeah. goes, where are you going? I'm going over here now. And he just kind of yeah, walks more off so, like a puppy dog. More so in the scenes where he's like... At, at the FBI? With, at the FBI, yeah. It's because he had a nightmare. So. Yeah, but but honestly, I, I don't mind it as much. And even when it went to Twin Peaks, the characters that it did show us like felt, you know, genuine. Mm. Um, I guess the only th- thing was that uh, I knew that not everyone who was in the show would appear in this film. I know that like a lot of them are in deleted scenes and stuff. Uh, so there are a lot of moments where I'm like, oh, okay, so these things that we heard about early in the show are going to happen, like events and characters and stuff. Mm. And uh, one thing that kind of conf- like yeah. took me aback was um, in very early in the show, Audrey Horn mentioned that like she wasn't friends with Laura, but she understood her. Yeah. So I figured because of that line, she would be in the film at some point, but no, no she's not in it at all. No. None, none of the Horns are. No, well, there was a reason for why Ben Horn wasn't in it, which yeah, I, is the actor yeah. objected to what was written down because he didn't feel it was. He felt like it was objectification. Yeah, I only which is fair. I actually agree with his tri- he, that trivia point. But uh, I think Audrey, the actress, just had scheduling conflicts, and I don't think it actually matters that yeah. she's not in it because we, the audience, are watching Laura Palmer and we understand what she's like, and then you can understand why Audrey relates to that because you've seen the show. You yeah. know what Audrey's like. You could see how she could relate to this character. But yeah, you could have had her in the show. We had Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they didn't call him Snake in this film. Dang it. So, yeah, that's the thing. Some people get knotted up about how this doesn't always line up continuity-wise with the events. Like, this thing didn't happen, or this happened in this way, and it was mentioned in the show this way. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I wouldn't have remembered. It, but, but people who do, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because the thing I think that you get out of this is it's about the emotional journey, which I know some people could say is a cop out. But I think for me, that's what I love about David Lynch is although you don't necessarily understand what's happening or why it's happening this way, what you do understand is the emotions that you are feeling right now. This film makes you anxious. It makes you sad, makes you angry. It makes you all these things. And it's all on purpose. There's no, oh, I accidentally made you annoyed. He's on purposely making you annoyed or frustrated. And that's, and people don't like that. People don't love yeah. watching movies that frustrate you or make you anxiety filled or dread in your bones. But then people also are like, but I love horror movies. <laughs> well, but, but I love horror psychological thrillers. Well, why did this horror psychological thriller make me feel weird? Yeah, exactly. So, also, even like, this doesn't really delve into like fan service or thing like that, but um, in terms of expectations, mm. I I wasn't expecting Donna to have so much to do in this film. They were, they were, she they, has, they were best friends. They they were best friends, but I think from what I remembered in the show, like she understood Laura, but I felt like she didn't know didn't know her. She no no well like sort of, but it felt like she, I thought the way she explained it all felt like she was a bit detached from. All the things that happened. Oh, yeah. You're thinking of events, right? I think that is true in the movie. Like, she's in the events, but she's detached 
on that emotional level. Like, true, true. But like just her presence in a lot of those events, I'm like, oh, okay, this gives mm. us like a little bit more for this character. Well, that's what I find really interesting about this movie is in the show, Laura Palmer is like this overwhelming presence, even though she's not in it because she's dead. She's this overwhelming presence. Everyone loved her, even though she did these terrible, terrible things, and they were aware that of of that, and they made and she made them into horrible people as well in certain regards, like Bobby, and 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 so on and so forth. And but the show does a really great job of making you feel bad that she's not around. Then this movie comes in, and you see how horrible she is. But then it does an amazing trick of making you feel sad for her, making you feel bad for. Her. I don't know if you felt this way. No, for sure, yeah. And yet she's doing all these horrible things, but we understand the reasonings as to why, even if they're logical, um, because human nature is chaotic in that kind of way. We were very detached from, I mean, everything we knew about her in the show was things that we heard secondhand. Yes, and that's what I love is we heard it secondhand first, and then we see it in the movie, and you see how obvious it is that she's in trouble. And you hear this in the show, like people reflecting, like it was so obvious, but we didn't notice. And I think that's really great. In this movie, you see how these people are self-absorbed in their own world, as we all are. That they're not noticing the girl that's falling apart right in front of them. Donna is sitting on a couch on the other side of the room, looking up at the fucking roof, thinking about James. But she's constructing in a way where it's for Laura, but she's thinking about herself, right? Donna's thinking about her own thing. Or when she goes out with Laura... Initially, it's to look after Laura, but then eventually it becomes, I want up you. I will be as bad as you to show you what you're doing is wrong, but then that falls apart. And it's not actually, like, I'm not saying that these people don't care about Laura, but as people are, they're self-interested, they're self-involved. James doesn't know her, Laura, as she says many times, and so does Bobby. Like, all these people have their own viewpoints and their own perspectives, and they're missing how obvious it is that this girl is suffering. But then she doesn't make it easy either. That's the thing. Like, real life, she doesn't make it easy for them to notice. Because as soon as they do notice, she flips on her, her girly mode. And she's, like, laughing. And then she manipulates them in some way. Like, with Bobby. When Bobby first comes <laughs> in and he's like, where the fuck were you? And then she does the girly. <laughs> and he's like, oh, I love you, girl. And does the walk backwards see, dance. Yeah, you can see him, like, slowly smiling. It's like, oh, he's, she's got you. And she does that so many times. And that's what makes this a complex performance and character. And... I love that this film shows that, like the mother, she is so aware, Laura's mum is so aware of all the disturbing things that's going on, but she's being, you know, manipulated by Laura, by Leland, and her own self-involvement. Like, oh, whenever anything goes wrong, you know what she'll do? She'll just smoke a cigarette and look out somewhere and not think about it. Mm. And that's when you have that great moment where you see, like, the ashtray filled with cigarettes and, like, Donna's like, if I had a nickel every time your mum had a cigarette, I'd be dead. <laughs> that was a funny line. There's so that. many funny lines. Like uh, one of my favorite lines is, um, "Where's the ring?" And then the sheriff and Dear Meadows like, uh, "We have a phone that has a little ring." <laughs> I don't know why that makes me crack up each time. The way he delivers that line. And be- I I can't remember if I mentioned this in this recording or before, but uh, I accidentally started watching the missing pieces, which is mm. like the deleted scenes uh, for this film. Uh, and so I'd seen the one where the main guy at the beginning of the film beats up that sheriff. So I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. I know what happens to you, but we're not going to see it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, 
we talk about this. Let's talk about the Deer Meadow stuff before we fade away from that because, you know, there's so much to talk before about. Before we do what the film does to it, yeah. Disappear. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of it when it first happened and how it first ended off and now in retrospect? Uh, I I liked the the opening scene with uh, Gordon Cole and the... You love his, Gordon. No, no, but um, specifically when he brings in his mother's sister's girl oh yes that was a very like from the beginning it's like oh this is something very unusual for this <laughs> film like compared to the show already she's wearing a sour face like she... <laughs> what does that mean this, she had a sour face this wo- <laughs> this woman in a red dress at like an airport hangar just appears gordon calls like all right pay attention to this woman this is this is he and what was his phrase he's like this is a gift for you or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. Something like that. <laughs> this woman just like does a little movements. She's got fist. this weird look. She wiggles a bit and then She's got a hand in her pocket. She's doing a fist. And it seems like oh she's Blue Rose. She's gonna uh, like join you or something and like little words and hand movements even from Gordon. And then the, the Yes. <laughs> and then and then the two guys uh guy You mean g- Solid Snake himself, Keeper Sutherland. Guy that goes missing and new snake, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, it was, it oh, he's he's big boss. It was it wasn't Solid Snake, yeah. He's big, big boss, boss. Um, or fake big boss, depending. It, both in both. It's a weird uh, spoiler for Metal Solid Five. Fuck you. Um, <laughs> uh, and then they have this drive where Keeper Sutherland's like, "What was that about?" And the guy just explains every little detail, except for the blue rose, except for the blue rose, which is important in the third series season. <laughs> okay. Oddly enough, well, didn't they didn't they say that? It's a blue rose case. That's what you kind of get. Is it's an important case. Was, was it said? Was it said that Kiefer Sutherland knew what the blue rose was, or was that something that was... he he said? Like, I think I know what the blue rose is, yeah. but you didn't get that moment where he explains it full heartedly to the audience. You kind of just go, oh, okay, like it's special, very avant garde, whatever. Yeah, so, so you had this like weird little scene, and then you have like an analysis of almost everything that happened there. Mm. So, when you first saw it, and then how it just kind of fades out with Chet... Was it Chet... Oh, what's his name? Yeah, that's... Chet Desmond? I think Agent that's his name, yeah. Chester Desmond or Chet Desmond. They call him both. Um, and he just disappears, and then Coop comes in, and he's like, Hello, it's me! I get a not-at-all-cinematic entrance where I just kind of walk into a room. How did you feel when you first saw the movie that that scene just kind of abruptly... It's like that that portion of the movie's over now. Yeah, you, the the ring is one of these elements that wasn't in the first two seasons that gets no, introduced in new, this. No, an owl ring, yeah. And like the moment he finds it and touches it, he, he's just gone. Everything yeah. about him is gone. Yes. And, and did it, when it cut to Coop, was this the David Bowie scene or did that happen That before? That happens, yes. That's the David Bowie scene where he walks in and he's just like, I had a dream about Jeffrey's coming in bar and then he does a camera thing and then i love that, <laughs> that visual yeah that scene that scene was bizarre so it mm. starts off with coop doing like a weird thing like he it seems like he's playing with a security camera or something because like, he had a dream about this image yeah i'm and, assuming and so he's trying to read he's doing it like it. really seriously and it's yes it's, it's a bizarre thing where he like yeah he's like looking sternly at a security camera that he enters like the camera room mm. looks at the video of him not being there well, the live feed yeah. goes back, forth, back, forth, and then all of a sudden he's still there, and and then David Bowie, David walks, Bowie past. walks past him. I love that visual. I think what makes sense too, Bartek, is let's not forget Coop in the show was serious at points, especially yeah, yeah. earlier in the show. 
So it's not like it's Carl McLaughlin's playing this completely without any coopisms in there. He does have coop stuff in there, but it's like this is before he gets to Twin Peaks and before everyone's like he gets absorbed into the nice kooky world of Twin Peaks. So he's like, I want to stay and be a fisherman and whatnot. Before he becomes buddies with Harry. Buddies with Harry, but also like whenever he does talk about dreams in the show, he's always stern and serious because he believes wholeheartedly in all this spirituality, but also he's very anti-spirits, but he's very much like, when it comes to dreams, he's very much like, I, I, I've got a gut feeling, I've got to follow this through, so when this does happen, but when you first finished watching the movie and you, you kind of saw that, that that was detached from the Laura plot in in a way, did you feel like it was redundant or we didn't need the Dear Meadow thing? Because I know a lot of people think that, but uh, I want to know what your feeling was when you first finished it off and do you still feel that? Well, the ring was a recurring thing throughout mm. the film. So to an extent, I have to say, yes, it no, not yes, it was redundant, but yes, it was necessary. Mm. Uh, I don't fully understand everything that happened mm-hmm. there, but I'm not going to, you know, write it off because of that. Yeah, but in all fairness, we've we've railed against movies that have had whole sequences built up because they just wanted to have one crucial plot element. And you could argue this is here just because the script needs it to be because of the mm. ring. That is a fair complaint to make. Yeah, I guess it's kind of hard because I'm watching this knowing that there's more. There is. Whereas... But at the time, there wasn't. When this oh, it took twenty five years for yeah, there to be more. Wasn't there a plan for like two more movies? Yeah, because they had wrote they wrote such a big script. Yeah, I mean the the only thing that I was really like, what did this add for the film? Was I guess the David Bowie thing. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So, it's my least favorite part of the movie, and I love David Bowie, so it brings a real hole to my heart saying that. Yeah, and even the yeah the way it was done too was I mean obviously so yeah. Here's the reason why. Mm. It's in the deleted scenes. There's the full scene. And yeah, it's okay. fucking great. Oh, God. Here's the problem. David Lynch has said, like, films stand on their own. You shouldn't be looking at, like, plot ideas that didn't happen or scenes that weren't in it and go, oh, that adds something. So, unfortunately, David Lynch muted this scene for whatever reason. It's a truncated scene. You can see that this scene is chopped the shit and it doesn't make any sense fully in the way it is currently. In the behind the scenes, which you can watch, I won't get into it too much because it's a deleted scene. You can say, Ryan, the deleted scene adds this, but the problem is it's not in the movie. Yeah. I don't want to talk about it, at but the, it adds mo- a lot more. It adds at the moment a whole of, sequence at, that should be yeah. in the movie. At the moment of this recording, I have no idea what it, any, like, I have no idea anything about it. <laughs> And it adds so much, but they deleted it for whatever reason, and it's baffling. But for the time being, David Bowie is a, a former agent that disappeared into the Black Lodge somehow on whatever trip he had. And I think that's what happened to Chet Desmond as well. I think he's disappeared into the Black Lodge. Yeah, it's... And, and the way... And they introduce this plot element, which is important in the universe of not only the movie, but the further on, which is there's a convenience store apartment there's an apartment above a convenience store that they live in, these people. Like, the, 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 the man from another place, and then the old lady and her grandson, and, like, there's a little dwarf in a red suit with a mask on that has, like, a chubby checker haircut. And there's a homeless man banging his elbow, and they all the, the people from the Black Lodge or the other place or whatever, they all live in this little... And Bob. And they all live in this apartment above a convenience store, which is somehow... David Bowie entered there and it's like a portal into the Black 
Lodge, which we see in Twin Peaks, the show. There's the one in the woods, and Chet Desmond must have entered one that was on this mound wherever he grabbed that ring, and then Laura and Laura enters it in her dreams through the the picture on her wall that she was given by one of them, and on and on it goes. Like it's introducing this element of you can enter this dream state world of the Black Lodge in many different ways. It's not just go to this place in the middle of the woods. It's you can enter it in this convenience store. And David Bowie's character entered it at some point and he's only just gotten out and he's witnessed all these crazy things that make sense if the scene was fully intact. But unfortunately, it's not fully intact. It's truncated. It's crazy. And it just comes and goes. And the sad thing is David Bowie gives a great performance, but you can't tell in the final state because it's just cut to shit. And then, unfortunately... David Bowie passed away or was too sick to do the third season, so he couldn't do it. He's I said this about like his character does make an appearance, but it's not him. Yeah, it's and like it's a just voice like it's a voice else. of yeah. someone else doing a voice of him, and it's just kinda of like and it does make sense. But unfortunately, in the context of the film, it's the weakest element of the film because it makes no sense because of the way it got cut down. Yeah. The full scene makes sense, but I can't my, talk my, to that because that's not in the film. Yeah, my memory of that scene is the uh, after they see on the video feed that you know Coop's still there and David Bowie walks past him. David Bowie goes to Gordon. Coop enters the room. They're like, "You've heard of this guy, I'm sure." And then From David the Academy. Bo- yeah, yeah, and then David Bowie sits down, starts talking, and then the film just like becomes very noisy and you can't hear anything. Yeah, and then it's cutting to all these different images, and you get the backwards speaking, and you get subtitles, and like. And that introduces that uh, the the man from another place, the dwarf. He likes um, what was it called, the gambosi or whatever, which is pain and sorrow, which is his cream corn that he's eating, and that comes into play. Oh, at... that's what that G word was. Yeah, because I thought I only heard that word at the end of the film. No, it's in the sequence that David Bowie's in, where he's just like, uh... was it one of the noises? No, you do get subtitles for it, but it's uh. He's because he's speaking backwards. He's talking about like the Formica tabletop is perfect and it's perfect to eat my gambosi or whatever that G word was yeah. off of. And Bob's like laughing at him, like you fool kind of thing. And you have like the dancing thing in the background. And that relates to the show because the little magician boy holds cream oh, yeah. corn in his hand. Yeah, there was cream corn. And this represents too, pain and sorrow. And then once you think about that, him holding in his hand when we first meet him is when like, we yeah. also meet Harold. Roughly around yeah, the same just, time. Just, yeah. And that character is the most painful and sorrowful living character that was in the fucking show. And he's in this movie. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things I'm like, oh, we're going to see him, right? I'm like, oh, and we, we do. And it's yeah. sad. It's yeah, fucking now, sad. F- okay. So the, the cream corn represents that G word thing. Which and... is in brackets, pain and sorrow. Yeah. At the end, it says. And it was in season two. Okay. Yeah. yeah there I are stuff that, that follows yeah. through on, but like, I love seeing the little magician boy and his grandmother. <laughs> do you know who the grandmother is? You've told me, but I've forgotten. Frances Bay, who was in Krippendorf's Tribe, but she was in Seinfeld. Mm. She was the old lady that got mugged by Kramer or Jerry. Jerry, right? I think it was Jerry. I can't remember. Mugs her accidentally. And then when the final episodes of Seinfeld, she's like one of the key witnesses. Like, she mugged me. And then they're like, oh, he's a bastard. I think I remember that. But yeah. um, And she's in a, a bunch of stuff. A whole bunch of stuff. But... Uh, um. I love seeing them, but yes, so that David Bowie scene is the weakest scene for me, and it breaks my heart because I love David Bowie. I love the ideas that are there, but 
David Lynch, for whatever reason, cut it to shit. And it's, you know, this is the final cut because David yeah. Lynch always gets final cut except for on Dune. So this is the way he wanted it. As but a, unfortunately, yeah. it's the weakest element of the film where you can't cut it because it talks about the ring. It talks about the cream corn. It talks about the, the, the other place and the Black Lodge and all these people live there. And it kind of shows you the dynamic of... Bob is the chaotic one in the room of chaotic nutjobs because it feels like Bob is the one who breaks free of there and does evil shit. And there's supposed to be like a balance to it, all right? But Bob is too chaotic, even for the other creatures of chaos. Like like the fact that the man from the other place is the arm. The arm. How did you feel about that? And at the end, he sits next to the one-armed man. So he's the arm that got cut off, right? (laughs) Which is a possession of a corrupted form. So he's, like, even Bob is too evil for the room full of crazy monster people. Because we've talked about this in the show. The people from the Black Lodge, the giant, the old man, all these people... They might be forces of chaos, but there's rules to it, it seems. Like, there seems to be, like, some kind of balance. And Bob doesn't abide by that. And they are all annoyed at Bob for doing this, but they can't stop him. And he's corrupting Leland, and he wants to corrupt Laura, and on and on and on it goes. Which, I'm sure if someone's listening to this and they didn't watch the movie, this sounds like gibberish nonsense. Also, (laughs) if you're that person, keep in mind that Bob is all caps. Bob. Because I say it like that, Bob. There's also a Mike that's all caps. Not to be, con- but they're not to be confused with Bobby and Mike, who are friends in the real world. No, no, no. They killed Mike. You killed Mike. <laughs> did I? No. <laughs> um. Did you? Is it me? Was I crazy? Was the guy that Bobby killed in the woods? Was that the same guy who was the one of the cops from Deer Meadow? I have... not the sheriff, but the other one with the mustache. The one that keeps laughing. Yeah. I thought that was him for some reason. I may be when wrong, that, when, but it's kind of hard to tell because it's a nighttime scene. When that scene happened, I was very confused because I don't remember if that had any reference in the show. I don't think it does strongly have a reference in the show, but there is the thing where they did have the big drug deal because she has the drugs in that safety deposit box or whatever mm. with like 10 grand or something or other, which is what they're after. But I think it just adds a new layer of how much she is a corrupting element to them as people because Bobby's now killing people. Jesus Christ, how fucked up is that? But but he had a therapy session where they're like, have you killed anyone? And he said, no, my dad has though. Yeah, but you know... He lied. He's a liar! But uh, the Dear Meta stuff for me, it's a good cold open. Like, it's a a prologue. It's letting you know elements of what's going to happen. It's setting up things that may not be necessarily plot, but emotional things... And it all does tie back. The Teresa Banks stuff ties back. Yeah. Like the ring and how Leland that knew was, her. That was one thing that I was really curious about going into this film because um, it's established that the person who kills the four women, or, well, tries to because Ronette survives, um, is the same person, which, you know, we learn it's Bob, yeah. who's in Leland's body. So I was always wondering, like, so what was the deal with the first woman who lived in a completely different town? Was, yes. Did Bob use Leland there? And then they established, like, that Leland was, like, having an affair with her. Yes. Uh, so immediately I was like, oh, cool, it's connected. So let's talk about Leland, because we talk about him. I think he's the second greatest performance in the movie. Cheryl Lee is, but I love Ray Wise. You know this, Bartek. Yes. I love him. You got a pop vinyl? I got a pop vinyl, but I love Leland as a character. I love him in the show. I fucking love him in this movie. What did you think about how the movie portrayed Leland? Not just in performance, but like the movie itself. So, 
uh, talking about the the show first, I always assumed that Leland was an all around like pretty good guy who's just been corrupted by Bob, and that's why he's got like you know any sort of evil in him. Not saying he's perfect. Would but... you say he was aware of his corruption that was a part of him, or not in the show? I feel like. For the most part, he wasn't, but towards the end, I maybe okay. around the time that, like, you know, he was being killed. The... Around the time where everyone knew, like, who where Bob was and stuff like yes. that. Um, but in this film, it shows that even outside of Bob, Leland has been doing stuff that's not exactly uh, on, on the on the good natured. Mm. And what do you think about that? It's definitely interesting. It gives mm. him more character. It makes you question a bit more, like you know, how much, how much did Bob, in did, was Bob always there, and that made him do these things, or did Bob feed off of that? Or this is also mm. assuming you know we know how Bob works, but uh, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. This really does make you question, like, how much of the events is Leland aware of? genuinely aware of and he's trying to just not acknowledge it because that's also something with Laura. Laura knows it's him but she keeps refusing to believe it and then there comes a point where we have the sex scene and she's like who are you and then she sees it's him and she's shocked and then later on you know you have Bob slash Leland was like with the diary pages and he's like I thought you always knew it was me. And it sounded like Leland was saying that, not Bob. And that's like the greatness of the acting. Like there are those obvious moments where Ray Wise drops his face in a certain way, where it's obvious he's being possessed by Bob without mm. doing an effect to show it. But it really does give you this gray area of how aware is he, and how much of it is Bob influencing him and he's aware of it, or how much is it just him as a person being a bad person, and then also how much of that is because of his corruption from the supernatural force. One of the things that, whenever I think of Leland and the fact that Bob's possessing him, is there was one line in the show where, when Bob's in control, he says something like, Leland told me this. And I always I didn't interpret that as Leland, like, you know, working with Bob or anything, but it, it implies this disconnect between the two of them. Yes. That, like, Bob doesn't know everything that Leland knows. And I think that's true, because I think he doesn't know everything, but that's the worrying thing for Laura, is if she gets possessed, she's worried, oh no, Bob's going to find out about you and kill you. That's why she pushes all these people away. Like, that's why she doesn't get with James fully, because she's worried that if I get possessed or if I get found out by this overwhelming presence, you're going to die. That's a part of the reason as to why she's so hostile towards the people she loves. I love this performance from Ray Wise. I think it's his greatest performance. I think it's a shame that he's still just a great character actor. I wish that he's gotten more juicy roles. I mean, he has, but I wish there was more like this, in which you just see this caliber of performance in such a juicy role. I've loved Leland, but I love that this interpretation of Leland kind of shows that he has this weird side to him. He has this weird affection for his daughter that is incestual. And that is like, is that from just Bob or not? Because he sleeps with girls that remind him of his own daughter. And those come across more as Leland than Bob. Mm. And that's a worrying state. But then when he's actually confronted with the fact that he is going to have and sees Laura, he fucking panics. He and literally runs away. says, I'm chickening it out, see ya. <laughs> and he walks away, and then one of the, the little boy jumps around and it's like, okay, the influence of magic is around, of supernatural stuff's around. But I love this 
crazy world of Leland Palmer. I've always thought that he was possessed from a young age, right? Because I thought in the show he, he mentions... mentions that he met a Bob or a guy like Bob when he was a boy. Yeah. And I've always thought, well, isn't that Bob's MO? Like he possesses young innocents. Young, innocent people, hence he wants to possess Laura, because that's what he wants at the end, right? He wants to possess Laura. He wants to become Laura. Yeah, something like that. And she puts on the ring, which we could talk about what our theories of the ring is, but she puts on the ring, so he has to kill her. He doesn't want to, but he has to, because he he gets mad. Bob gets mad and kills her. And then we have angels, and it's great. But uh, (laughs) Leland, I feel so sorry for him, too, because I think my... It's so hard to pick a favorite scene in this movie or sequence, but I think my favorite scene is the one where Mike... No, not Mike. Um, what What is the... What's the guy with the one arm called again? Uh, I can't remember his real name, but the guy possessing him is Mike, all caps. Mike, all caps, yes. He... The one arm man, when he drives up with the RV and they're just fucking screaming, you can't understand, you barely understand what he's saying, and they're like freaking out. That scene is one of my favorites because everyone's acting is phenomenal and the sound design. My God, say what you want about David Lynch, but that guy knows how to use sound. He knows how to use soundscapes and music. And the one thing with the music is Twin Peaks has always had fucking great music, hasn't it? Yeah, when it first cut to Laura in this film, didn't it play the theme? Yeah. Yeah, that was nice. Yeah, it reminded you of, oh, it's Twin Peaks. Everything's going to be happy now. While when we're in Dear Meadow, it's like all this sleazy, sad music, where it's like very... (laughs) Where Harry Dean Stanton's like, I own the fat trout trailer park, and I'm miserable. Everyone's fucking miserable. (laughs) But I... um, Ray Wise, man. Want to talk more about Leland and how you felt about him and Ray Wise's performance? Any standout little moments or scenes with him? Because he's like the second main character of this. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. Um, I think it was right after what you were just talking about when they parked the car and they're talking. Was that the scene where Laura asks him if he went home or was that a yes. different scene? Yes, and he lies. And then he remembers. Yeah, it, it was very weird. It was like, is he lying? Did he not remember? Did he, like... Yeah. Like, one of the things, I guess, what I was thinking in terms of, like, is he aware of... um, Is he aware of everything that Bob's doing to him or things like that? I guess I always interpret it kind of as, like, maybe he has, like, gaps in his memories and it's those kind of gaps where, like, only when you think about it, it's like, wait, what did happen there? Yeah. Because he seems to be... I know in the show he's got, like, you know, those moments where he's, like, just breaking down and dancing, but it seems like he always, when he's not thinking that hard, thinks that everything's been normal, but, like, if he, if he just questions, like, wait, what did I do here? That's when things get a bit weird, so... Yeah. So maybe he did genuinely, like, remember, like, oh, yeah, I did walk out of my house, but, like, do you remember why you went but there? But then you followed up with him being a stern guy, being like... but but I didn't see you, Laura. Where were you? And do you think that's Bob talking then? Or do you think that's Leland? Because then it becomes like this intimidation game. That's the thing. How much of it is Bob? Like, for instance, do you think what I think is one of the most intense scenes, the wash your hands scene, do you think that's Bob or Leland? Yeah, that's a good question. (laughs) Because it's fucking terrifying, no matter which of the answers it is. Because it's that weird thing of, we know that he has an obsession, affection, and uh, and possession of Laura as a father figure. But then we also know Bob does too. 
And that scene, it's mainly about him humiliating her because, what's that? You got a new lover? They don't call them lovers anymore, Leland. It's not from Bobby. You know, like, and that's like, Part of me how wa- much is this Bob himself being a possessor? Or how much is it Leland? Part of me wants to say it was Bob, but like, considering that there's a lot more like hints when it is Bob, it feels like you have to say it was Leland. But so, then yeah. they're also, but then you have Leland crying later on in the bedroom. It's like he realizes what's happened mm. and he feels bad about it. And then he apologizes to her and she treats him like, oh, it's you again, dad. But I guess maybe there's this like third mode where it's like a halfway. Yeah. Something. Well, that's a, that's the ambiguity. I love, um, that scene though, the, the, the dinner scene, because what I love about it too, is she comes in and he's like, come sit down. And then he sets her up to fail. Like, you didn't wash your hands before dinner. Yeah. You just told her to sit down. And I'm not saying that I've had that, an yeah. example of this extreme, but I've had that happen with parents, right? Where have, you, have you ever had that happen in life where you were going, like, you get told to do one thing and then you get punished because you didn't do a certain thing, but that thing didn't happen because you got told to do this thing by this person who's telling you off right now. I've had that happen mm. in my life. Parents have done that. Teachers have done that. I don't think I've that, had that yeah. happen many a times. And this scene is like an escalation of that. <laughs> In, in a fictional sense but like yeah I don't think my parents but I think I have had that happen somewhere in life because yeah it was familiar <laughs> and it's just like it is that's the thing about this this is Twin Peaks has always had this it's something familiar but it's cranked up with a weird Lynchian supernatural edge and that's why it's so emotionally resonant is you have had feelings like these or had similar feelings or you know people who have I've known so many Laura Palmers in my life I've known quite a few and it's so hard to watch this movie, because I've known a, a couple of Laura Palmer's in school and in life, and it's just like, oh, Jesus, it's really difficult to watch. And I've known a few Leland's too, like all these corrupted people who want to be good. They don't know how, or it's too late. And it's just kind of this sad affair of just misery. But I love that hand scene. It's just so sad. And I love, um, Bartok and I have talked about this off air, but like one of my favorite things in the show that isn't explained until this movie is the the, the ceiling fan in the house. Yes, it's yes. like a big recurring thing for the first season, at least. And then in this movie, it's really. I well, how did you feel about the ceiling fan? Well, uh, yeah, we've we've mentioned mostly brought on by you, but I did think in the very pilot episode that like yeah, we there are a few shots where we just see like the stairway and the fan is spinning and like you're drawn to the fan because it's making a little bit of noise. And it's slowed down. But um, and, yeah. I, I don't think it ever like factors into anything much. And then in this movie. There's, um, we see Laura doing her, like, Meals on Wheels, like, she's putting stuff in a truck, and the grandmother and grandson from the Black Lodge appear, talk to her, and they say, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but they mention that man is currently under the fan. Yeah. And it, like, evokes this image of that fan and knowing that something's under it at that moment, meaning, Mm. you know, it's in her house, probably going to her room. And we know that these creatures from the Black Lodge, we know this from the show and from this movie, that they have some weird relationship with electrical objects and electricity in some way. Like, they always come from one of those in oh, some yeah, way, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. Whenever the giant appeared in the show, like, the lights would go There's dark. There's some weird relationship with that yeah. as well. And the fan is obviously that, because when they do turn on the fan in the movie... Then in her room, you have the weird strobe electrical flickering that matches the blades of the fan spinning around like it's matching the sound. Mm. So there's like this weird supernatural element with electricity as well. But 
anything else you want to talk about with the fan? Because I have quite a few things I, I, I want to say, but I want to know if you have any more feelings about like how, how it relates to everything. I, I don't have any theories. I was just very happy that, like, oh, it's been acknowledged as mm. like a landmark by the Black Lodge. So one of the things I found very striking, and it's just a visual thing, the film doesn't sit down and say, this is what it is, but when you break this down, this girl's been being... This is, this is just me being frank. This girl's having been raped by her dad since she's been 12. She says this in the movie. She's like, Bob's been having me since I was 12. Hmm. Comes in through my window. We find out it's Leland, right? One of the things is Leland, whenever he leaves the bedroom, he turns that fan on. And it's a trigger. That's like a, a you know a triggering effect for Laura because you must imagine every time that these sexual assaults have happened, she would be in her bedroom and she would hear that fan turn on. Yeah. And, you know, with, with a lot of these kind of psychologically traumatic events, those little things like that, the little things in life that continue on while something's horrible is happening, which Twin Peaks delves into, things still go on even when horror is happening. And something as mundane as a fan just spinning in the next room while you're being raped by your dad... Fucking hell, that would just be, like, psychological nightmare yeah. for you. It reminds me uh, of uh, stories of, like, people who take in rescue dogs. Like, if mm. they ever do something like, oh, there's a baseball bat, I'll pick it up. The dog, and like, the dog freaks away. out, or like, light, lightning happens, and they freak out in a weird way, or yeah. fireworks and stuff, yeah. And that's what I mean, like, visual storytelling. Like, that is just, here's, here's how it plays out. Leland walks out of the room, turns the fan on, cuts to Laura, just looking nervous. That's all it is. And what I just said, I got all of that from just those three images. Leland walking out, fan getting switched on, Laura reacting. And that is just great filmmaking right there. It's just, it tells you, there it is. You know that's what it's about. Or that's what I get from it, at least. You might get something different, but that's what I get out of it. And it's just strikingly powerful stuff. And that's what I love about this movie is I feel so annoyed when people hate this movie because it's like, I understand why the movie wants you to feel angry, but I feel so many things that I don't feel from a lot of movies. And that's why this is probably one of my favorite David Lynch things because it makes me feel so many things genuinely. While a lot of movies that I see... I don't get that. I feel like, oh, I analytically felt this, but I didn't actually feel anything, you know? You yeah, know what like, I mean? Yeah, it's like this scene, it's meant to evoke feelings of this in you, and it's effective because of these reasons, but it's like, yeah, but personally, then, yeah. Yeah, like, or, uh, yeah, I'm aware that I had some reaction, but it's because of, like, I'm aware. But, like, with David Lynch stuff, I find it so hard to vocalize why a scene makes me feel sad or makes me feel anxious like why is it that when laura's talking about fucking spinning in space faster and faster so she burns forever and the angels won't help her why does that make me feel so fucking sad it's kind of harder to describe than say uh like in a marvel movie when this character dies you know, like you know that kind of thing when black panther goes in a coma and he wakes up <laughs> 10 minutes later like nothing <laughs> big deal yeah you fuck you and like we're gonna do black panther one day but i, um, I don't even hate it but yeah you, you, you do i think you just don't want to admit it no i just but, whatever um you know it's shit like that that just makes you go wow this is effective filmmaking you know even in twin peaks fire walk with me a film that's very divisive you can't, I like, I'm not saying you can't, but I can't not feel bad for Laura Palmer. It's like, this is one of the few main characters in a story that I am absolutely feeling empathy for. 
even though what she does is stuff I wouldn't do, I believe it. I just look at her and go, yeah, give James the finger. That fucking scene. <laughs> hey, James, what about this? <laughs> cuts to her, give it just, the finger. Just, just let everyone know, Ryan's a big fan of James, so he likes it when things happen Oh, did him. you know, James is James was always cool. <laughs> Fun fact, James was never cool. He's got a cool song. He does. I... <laughs> Oh, you're talking about his song? I actually like James's theme, like the music that plays when James comes in, his theme, because each character has a theme. I actually like James's theme. Um, I'm trying to think what other things we want to actually talk about. Like, we'll talk about the ring and all those mythos stuff, but I wanted to talk about, like, the actual story itself without just getting delving into the Red Room and blah, blah, blah. One character we haven't mentioned yet is Jacques. Jacques plays Jacques. a very big role. One of the He's a big guy, so he better play yeah. a big role. Yeah, and one of the things that when I was walking to the film, obviously I was saying like, uh, you know, oh, we're learning Laura, we're watching Laura's stuff that we've heard about, so we're going to see these characters, and I mentioned Audrey didn't appear, but I was like, maybe we'll get Jacques, because he was only in like, I feel two episodes. Two, three episodes, maybe. Ba- barely that even. and so, But he like, he's got this striking look. But, and and uh, I, uh, yeah, performance. And I, rem- yeah, and I remember there was this one close-up of him in one of the episodes. It was just yeah. like disgusting. And we get that again in this too, when he's on the phone. <laughs> yeah, and he's... Bobby. Fa- he's a fairly prominent supporting character in this film. And I actually really like that. I really like, just in terms of relationship to the TV series, it adds a little more weight that we know that Leland attacks him. And he's watching them in this movie, watching them do this thing to his daughter, so that later in the TV show, when he does kill that character, Jacques, yeah. it adds a little bit more weight yeah. to, to it, because there's already already a history here. There's already history, whether the character realises it or not. Yeah, and since it's been a few weeks, I actually forgot some of the details of what happened at the cabin, so actually seeing it was like, mm. oh, yes, of course, this is all. this all happened. Um, yeah, Jacques was very good. What did you think about the, uh, the pink room section, they call it, or whatever, where they have the subtitles and you can barely hear them, and it's like, Laura's naked, and Donna's getting brave, and like, everyone's dancing around. constant loud white noise. And the music is riffing on, yeah. Mm, Yeah, that was, it was a very, very visually striking segment. Mm. And what did you think about it as an, as an actual scene itself of, like, you said, like, you were surprised that Donna got so much to do in this. And mm. that that scene's kind of the height of that, right? Where we yeah. see Donna gets corrupted. Yeah, well, the, yeah, just before that scene, they're in, like, the front of the building, not in the yeah. room yet. And Donna turns up to, yeah. I guess, she's concerned for Laura, but like you say, she's starting to try to show her up. And I think, I think a part of it, too, is Laura goats her into it, right? I think, yeah, well, that's part of the thing, because on this night where Donna meets up with her, she's really seeing this striking difference in, like, the last time she saw Laura, she was crying and asking, like, are you my friend? And now she's this standoffish, like, kind of bitchy character. Yeah, she's she, turning she, on the homecoming refu- queen. She re- like... Yeah, she refused to tell her what she's doing, so she followed her and... What she sees is her soliciting two men who are paying her. But she's also antagonistic towards those men. Yeah. Like, you don't fucking own me, you know? Like, <laughs> you want some? You want the homecoming queen? <laughs> you know, like, that, that. But fucking Cheryl Lee's performance. Like, you saw her play Maddie in the show. Hmm. But my God, 
did you think that she was going to be this fucking great as Laura? Like, Laura's a character that you hear so much about to the point in which you go, do you need to see her proper? Like, we see her in the Red Room and whatnot, but, like, to actually see Laura, the character. When I hear that David Lynch uh, was, before the film, thinking about how in the show it's a known fact that everyone loved Laura and he himself also loved Laura, but he wanted to show why mm. she's lovable and this film exists and, you know, the performance is great, yeah. uh, very empathetic. I feel, yeah, it's it definitely succeeded in that regard. I think, honestly, this is probably in my top five best female performances in cinema. I think it's just hard to describe why it's so fucking good, but it just is. It just, it's it's heartbreaking to watch. You just feel so much for her, and it's just so good. And she has lines. Okay, you know what made me think? It made me think of Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. In Vampire's Kiss, Nicolas Cage takes it upon himself to see if he can say boo-hoo. Yeah. (laughs) And make it pay off. It doesn't work. I love Vampire's Kiss. We did a whole episode on it. I do love that film. In this film, Cheryl Lee is tasked with saying gobble-gobble like a turkey, after having a whole exchange about how she's a turkey, and then being told, no, you're not, turkeys are the dumbest and dumbest birds on the planet, and then she's like, well, I guess that's me. Gobble, gobble. I nearly fucking cry at that scene, because she's just so believable that you, I do not find it at all. Like, it is amusing, but I'm not laughing stupidly at the fact that our lead character is crying and saying, gobble, gobble, which I would in any other fucking film with any other fucking performance. Did you did you feel that way about that scene? Do you remember this, when she's talking I, to James? I remember that. they're whispering a lot. <laughs> I think I do, yeah. I, I'm remembering the muffin. Oh, that was more, in the but, pink room. Yeah. But yeah, but then that the muffin line is supposed to be kind of funny because Jacques like saying whatever. He's like the went or whatever. Something like that, yeah. The great went. And then she's like, and I'm the muffin. But like, I read the Laura, that apparently that's related to like a deleted scene or something. But then yeah. you have Laura and she's like, I'm a, I'm a turkey. No, you're not. Turkey's the dumbest birds. That's me then. Gobble, gobble. And I'm like, fucking hell. This is Nicolas Cage saying boo-hoo. I don't remember the... the, I remember the gobble-gobble thing. I don't remember the lines surrounding it, though. Because James is whispering, talking, so it's kind of hard to understand him, but that's James for you. But, uh... You know, I I, I don't like James as a character, but boy, do I kind of feel sorry for him. But then also the film does a good job of making me not feel sorry for him because he's self-absorbed. Like, he's such an angsty bitch. He has to wait for the the light to go red to speed through it. Like, that's how angsty he is. Like, when Laura jumps off the bike and leaves him, the light's green, and he waits for it to go to orange, then to red, and then speed his bike through it like an angsty little bitch. And that makes me go, ah, fuck you, James. <laughs> I don't like James. But this movie also made me feel for him. I, I didn't I didn't interpret the, him speeding off as angsty. No, 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 no. The fact that he waits for it to go red... And then he speeds through the red light. I, I interpreted that, as him not even paying attention to no, the light. No, no, no. He was. was he's he? looking at it and he's waiting for it to go red because that's James. James is just a little angsty bitch like that. Like, like he's a dramatic bitch. Like, in this movie, he's just got, like, so much drama. Like, I love you, Laura. And she's like, your Laura disappeared. It's just me now. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> fucking hell. Um, but we learn in the show that he doesn't love Laura. Well, no. Does anyone? Really, that's the point, right? Does anyone, did anyone read, like, people loved her, but did they know her is the thing. I think what I love is Twin Peaks, the show, 
thesis is who killed Laura Palmer, but in doing so, it I, it answers the question of who was Laura Palmer, right? Mm. This movie is kind of like, how was she? <laughs> um, how is she? Is she okay? <laughs> That's kind of like what it's more exploring. How was she near her end, right? Can we talk about the Harold scene? How did you feel about that? Did you enjoy that? And when she drops the title of the movie, Fire Walk With Me. <laughs> she just said Twin Peaks before that. Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. In theaters now. 1992. <laughs> Directed by David Lynch. That's me! <laughs> yeah, he yells from the window. Watch the first two seasons first. You die in that, Harold. So do I. Yay. Well, no, I die in this film. I'm already dead. Yeah. So, what do you think of seeing old Harold appear? Um, Just remembering the scene. Yeah, he. It, it's, it was good that we saw that since it was mentioned that mm. yeah, Laura had met with him and formed a relationship of, of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there was some line that she said in, uh, oh, maybe not a line, but like the, the, I'm not, no, I think it was just the fire walk with me thing. Like she, she gets upset. And... She ha- gets upset and we see her crack in the quick cut of her in that makeup. That is her, like we see from like with the black lips and the yellow teeth and the white skin, mm. right? We see that quickly. And then we see that happen to Leland when he enters the black lodge near the end. And it's kind of like a visual cue of like when you're getting corrupted. And it's like her, this is like showing how she's slowly succumbing to Bob, where at the very end she sees Bob in the mirror and she's freaking out about that, right? Mm. I love seeing that scene. I think it's a great scene of like, she's given this diary away and it's just kind of like another example of she's got to hide this stuff and she's hiding it with this one guy she knows Bob can't find. And to give away the show, it's also very sad because we know what happens to that character of Harold. Yeah. And now inadvertently Laura doing this hurts Harold because then people do find Harold and it drives him over the edge. Yeah. And that's why people, people who do like him but to have to like oppose him it's, yeah, and it's tragic. it destroys him. And he's probably this character I feel the most sorry for in the whole entire show. Is that character I fucking feel so bad for him but uh, in this movie we see him and it's like it's a nice little fan service it makes sense too she has to get rid of the diary she's explaining how the diary has pages missing and it's got to be her dad and he's like no it can't be your dad then reinforcing again like this typical suburbia American uh, Americana happiness of no you got the nuclear family you can't be distraught and have a disturbed upbringing with an abusive father that can't be the case it has to be some outsider force like a literal demon from another dimension or i don't know someone from another town it can't be someone from this town with being your dad he's a nice guy that typical attitude is very prevalent in day-to-day life especially in suburbia which david lynch always explores Mm. um did you have a favorite scene or sequence in this movie that we haven't that that we have or haven't talked about that we haven't talked about. I'm just gonna fast forward through the film in my mind. Uh, <laughs> I really did like that first Gordon Cole scene with the the, the girl. Uh, you did. Um, no, we haven't mentioned Leo yet. He appeared in a few scenes. <laughs> Being Leo. One of my favorite sequences in the movie, although I do still love that scene with Leland and the car, one of my favorite sequences is Laura dreaming and going into the picture of the door cracked open and she enters like the rooftop of the Black Lodge and there's the old lady like hithering her over and then she like it's all first person and then she goes in the room there's like the little boy 
in the room and he snaps on the lights and all of that and then that she has the ring and she wakes up from her dream and she has the ring in her hand and and then she's like what no and then she walks towards her own door and she looks at the painting or the picture of it and there's her halfway through the doorway and it's like oh it's looking at me from the other side she looks and it's like i love that whole sequence and then annie turns up to be like hey i'm stuck in the black lords right Watch out. yeah that scene that whole sequence i fucking love it i love the dreaminess of it i love what it actually means i love that it shows off how it's that thing of in movies that idea of dream well the movie says it david Bowie says it we live in a dream which is very much Twin Peaks. A lot of dreams and dreams and dreams and life is a dream and all of that. And it also, yeah, it also introduces this little element of, uh, I guess time works differently yeah. between the worlds because the thing that uh, Annie says is from the future is related to the end of season two. Yes, and Lee, uh, what did you think about um, about the fact that? Laura is told not to take the ring from Coop in the future in the red room because he looks directly at the camera and says don't take the ring Laura. What do you think of that? Yeah, honestly, I'm I'm I don't I really don't know much about the ring. Do you do you don't have any theories on the ring? It's Again, a, it's I... an owl ring. The symbol's an owl. There we go, Al. That's another motif that I don't know about. I, I really need to see the film again. Is, is yeah, because because the ring's important. It's a key element of the film, but you're saying you don't have any theories on what it kind of represents or what it kind of adds to? Because it is, like, one of the big elements. Again, I, I really need to see it again just so I can get my thoughts in. Because, you know, once you rewatch something, yeah, yeah, you know yeah. everything that happens, you got all the pieces, you see something early on, it's like, yeah. oh, later on this, so... I've always interpreted it as it's, like, a protection thing. Like, you wear it, it protects your... protects you from being possessed by one of those creatures. Yeah, and pissed so, off Bob. And yeah. It, yeah, and Bob couldn't possess her and he had to kill her instead. And that's kind of where I went. But then Coop says not to take it and that's a bit muddling, but I think it's kind of like Coop is coming from his perspective of another time and another place and he's like aware that she dies. Mm. And so it's kind of like, hey, don't do that. Don't take that ring. Because Coop's got a completely outsider perspective. Because Coop's not from here. Let's not forget. He's in a different place at a different time. Ah, what if that was Bad Coop, though? No, I think we know it's not Bad yeah, Coop. Because yeah. it's in the Red Room. And Bad Coop's not in the Red Room. He's outside now, as Annie tells us. Mm. Good Coop's trapped in there. But maybe this is before Good Coop got trapped in there. No, I don't think so. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, I, There's just so many things. I love the music. I love that. At the uh, the Bang Bang Bar, we have that chick singing the song, and Laura's looking very wistfully, and she's got like the the pink lighting, and it's just lots of lots of fun little little things like that. Any other things you want to bring up about this movie? Any questions or things you want to discuss? Elements, theories, feelings evoked. The ring was the main one. Do I have any others? Um... David Bowie and the Rings were the, the two really big ones. Ah, mm. uh, I feel like there is something, though. There's a lot that went on in this movie. <laughs> we got to see the bird that Leo kills later. Yes, we, we did. Yeah, we didn't get to hear anyone yell, Leo, no, but... She did. Did she? Because I was listening out for her and I didn't hear I it. I thought she did. She, she, ties, she says that she doesn't like being tied up. Well, wasn't it Ronette that was meant to shout, Leo, no? Because... I can't remember, honestly. It's been a while since I've watched the series. But that's the thing. It doesn't... It doesn't fucking matter. Was it nice to see you run it? 
Yeah, it was. So if you can't think of much else to say, I will bring up the final kind of elements of the movie. I love... Okay, so we're going to talk about the angel in the room. There's angels in this movie. Uh, the angel's wings disappear. Laura doesn't believe in angels, or if she does, she doesn't believe that they're here to help you. She has a very nihilistic viewpoint, it seems, of, like, you will burn forever and suffer alone because there is no outsider force that can help you. You are forever damned kind of attitude. Is that, is that a fair point of view? Yeah, yeah, there is the nihilism. And then at the end, we have Ronette praying that someone will help her. And then an angel appears, and the door opens, and she gets attacked, but she gets pushed out and she lives. Mm. Uh, that's Yeah, that was another thing. I did like in that train carriage scene, it did seem like Laura was very concerned for Ronette, even if it meant sacrificing herself. That was a nice little touch. And that's kind of what Laura's like, right? She's concerned for everyone to the point in which I think she sacrificed. She, I think she knew what was going to happen. I think she knew she was going to have to die. Mm-hmm. And she kind of does it to sacrifice herself to save everyone else because they're all going to get corrupted. It's like the log lady says in that one scene was like the fire starts now and innocence is the first thing to go, but then it can keep going and the evil consume us all kind of thing. Mm. I think Laura sacrifices herself and I think it's really great that like, yeah, this angel comes in and it's a spirit or whatever and it saves Ronette because Ronette believes in something higher and it actually does pay off for her and she does get to live. And um, that's great. And then Laura, you know, she transcends at the end. She's in the red room, but she's content now. She's not suffering the life she was on Earth. She's now got Coop, who's basically a fucking angel in his own right, as yeah, we know from the show, <laughs> comforting her. And we end, like we do with the original show, a picture of her smiling, a still image of her with a grin on her face. But this time round, it's a... A very different type of smile. It's a very broad, open smile. Because that's the thing about the the picture, the homecoming picture of Laura Palmer, is it has this weird smile that you look at it and you can get so much interpretation of is this a genuine or put-upon smile Mm. in that homecoming picture, right? Like when you see it at the end of credits each time the show is on. Yeah. And that's an iconic picture. Because it has so much going on in it. And then this, it ends with her smiling and she's got like lit with bright white light, very angelic, and she sees the angel and there's lots of stuff like that. It's kind of like she's transcended to this point of being content. I will say before before I ever watched Fire Walk With Me, you ha- we had mentioned in our talks off air, well, obviously because we haven't talked about Twin Peaks on air yet mm-hmm. before, um, about how there's a lot of meaning behind it. But honestly, since at that point I had the whole detachment from, you know, I only know about Laura mm. in, in retrospect, what I hear secondhand, I always just saw the picture as like uh, a thing, the, the picture itself, the fact that it exists as being this reminder of olden days gone by yeah so not so much like what laura is actually thinking what it actually means for laura but like what it means for everyone else and that's kind of what the show is about right yeah to the show even even after the mystery is solved and no one talks about laura anymore it's still like this little relic there of like yeah but things were different things were different things were more idealistic but that obviously the show and this movie explores the fact that no they weren't Mm. things weren't happy things weren't great 
things were bad from the very beginning and no one was noticing because they're all self-involved. They've all got their own things. I want to date James, but you're dating James, so I'm going to encourage you to keep dating him. And what about Bobby? Bobby doesn't, you don't actually love me. You love me because I have drugs, you know? Mm. It's okay to admit that, like that's kind of thing. But I think it's great that at the end she's transcended to this point. And this is where I'll briefly just touch upon the third season of the show. Mm-hmm. Laura's in it. <laughs> Again. Well, yeah, I mean, sure. And it transcends this transcendence to me. At this point, like, honestly, I would be, a, I would have been content. Like, I love the third series season, but I was always content with this being the, 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 the conclusion. Yeah. I know that there's always, you want to know about Coop and you want to know about all these things. But for me, and I think for David Lynch, the show was always about Laura Palmer at the center of it all. And for me, this journey ended here. But then the third season happened, and that takes it in a very different direction and a very welcome direction, and it makes me really recontextualize and really rethink this movie in a grand way. And it's kind of hard to describe, but this well, makes this movie of a, of a simple yes/no answer. You know, no details needed. Does Laura have like character development in the third season, or is she more <laughs> there for others, or is it just the cancel the question? Yes. Yes. Um. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. And. It's a thing of this movie's recontextualized so much from this third season to the point in which I'll say this. This movie seems so, for the third season, so innocent <laughs> and quaint and nice. Tame? Not tame. I wouldn't well, say tame, well, but enough, more there like. Are rapes, but yeah. More innocent of a thing. It's very longing, and I and that's all I will say. Um, I think that's about it with Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, unless there's anything else you can think of. It's a very affecting, engaging movie, very polarizing. Mm. Uh, do we want to talk about any other negatives? Like I said, for me, it's really David Bowie, too many crossfades. There was too many scenes of fading out and fading in and crossfades. I felt like he relied a little too much on that. It felt like, okay... A little too much, a little too much of a quick scene happens of a car driving and then it cross dissolves to a house and then the cross dissolves into the house and like, eh, you can kind of ease up on the dissolves and the fades. So back on the David Bowie thing, do you think that of all those deleted scenes, that one should have been the one to remain in the film? Yes, there's two things I think should have remained in the film that would have helped it. That and they have more deleted scenes of the Palmer family being normal. Okay, yeah, that was going to be my question. And that could have been beneficial, but I think the David Bowie scene it should have stayed intact. Not only because I love David Bowie, but it's because it's an actual if you're gonna crucial ha- element. And it's like... If you're going to keep part of it, why get rid of all of it, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, at least make it make sense more so. But And you can't cut it. That's the thing. Like I can see why you couldn't cut it out, but at the same time, you... Yeah, and that's kind of my views of the negatives. Like I said, it's a very polarizing film, but it just is so emotionally wrought that I I enjoy it. I, I know why people don't. I'm glad that it's got a reappraisal over the years, that people have really come back to it, especially after having viewed the third season and seeing, okay, because the third season gets a lot tonally from this. And... Um, I can see why people... Will, I wanted a follow-up. I want to know what happened to Coop and Annie and and all these people. And, oh, no, what about Ben Horn and Jerry yeah. and all that? And, and I know that there's a deleted scene that follows it up, so it's all good, right? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. Um, 
Uh, yeah, the deleted follow-up of it. Who told me what it Which is, is just yeah. Coop being like, I, but I haven't brushed my teeth yet. And then that's it. Where you're like, why did you even film it? Every film ever should end with like an after-credits scene of someone being like, gotta brush my teeth. Yes. Um, that's all I have to say, Bartek. Closing thoughts? Uh, David Lynch did a really good job and he directed it really well too. <laughs> yeah, his acting job was really good. <laughs> um, yes... Uh, in seriousness, I, I would want to watch it again because there's definitely a lot of good stuff there. And I, I guess one thing I was wondering was, you know, forget about, you know, watching this before or after the show. Obviously, the best thing is to watch it after. But thinking about, like, let's say someone's got a gun to your head and you haven't seen Twin Peaks Season 1 and Season 2. And they say, you have to watch Fire Walk With Me within the next this amount of time and it's not enough time to watch season one and two it's like okay i'll watch the film and live that's fine but what will i so i'm gonna watch it what will i get out of it yeah i think even you know looking at all these elements that wouldn't make sense if you haven't seen the show cheryl lee's acting and her whole story i think there's a lot there yeah this is one of those performances where you just go, you know, if the Academy Awards was actually a thing where they gave awards to the best things, she would have got nominated for a performance because yes. this is just fucking amazing. But it's not because it's a horror genre thing. And it's David Lynch and fuck you. We don't want it because it's based on the show and blah. And no one liked it. And it was cold. One of the worst movies ever made when it first came out. And that's like absurd. But uh, it is funny when I look at the title and the W in with is lowercase, but all the other words are capitalized. That's what he wanted. No, I know. It's fine. It works. <laughs> it's <but. laughs> fine. It works. Um, all right. That's our discussion on Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me. Um, are you disappointed that they didn't do the full poem? Or Firewalk With Me? Uh, I don't even remember the full part. I know there is one, but I, I don't remember how it goes. I'm not disappointed. It's fine. Are you disappointed we didn't get any Hawk? We didn't get any of the police. Well, we got we got Bizarro Police. Yeah, we got Bizarro version of, uh, of uh, Lucy I laughing. Think, <laughs> <laughs> I think we needed to have Andy be the Greek chorus of the film. After every scene, he, every just, scene. he just says... Twin Peaks, a world where everyone's not who they seem, except for Andy, who is who he, who he is. <laughs> There's no ifs and or buts. Like, Twin Peaks is always about, like... Oh, everything seems pristine, but under the surface, there's corruption. But Andy is, like, literally who he, prote- who he is. Well, like, you say that, but he was going to be the main character of the next film. Imagine. <laughs> um, all right, that's Twin Peaks Why I Walk Me. Bartek, a pleasure to discuss this big, epic film that um, felt like an imposing... I just felt like we needed... I needed to talk about this at some point, but it's like a lot of legwork had to be put in because... But I had to watch the show first, and uh, that's what I believe anyway. And then also, like, actually watching it and thinking about this grand context of David Lynch made this. And, in a and he made it a prequel, and he did this, and this, 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 and this, and the show, and the love for Laura, and the performance, uh, all this, and the and, hatred, and the audience reception. And in a meta sense, me tracking down a copy of this film. You had a very hard time tracking <laughs> yes, down a copy of this film, I don't know why. Apparently, people on the internet think that the thing titled Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is Twin Peaks, The Missing Pieces. So no. anyone listening to this, if you're going to find this film online... Not legally, not, like Bartek. Not legally. If, but if you're going to try to track this down without, you know, you know, forking some money over, <laughs> if the thing is 90 minutes long and it begins with a shot of Laura Palmer's picture, 
you found the wrong thing, and whoever uploaded it is wrong. <laughs> mm, David, I mean, uh, David Lynch surely did let us know that he had a bad relationship with TV, with the movie opening up with the TV getting smashed in with a sledgehammer. That was a nice, subtle, subtle way of saying, fuck you, this isn't the TV show. And nor will it ever be again. And a woman screamed, I think, too. Oh, yeah, as you do. So, ah! so women like the TV. Okay, Bartek. We know Japanese women like this movie, apparently. So, I guess Japanese Bartek, women like TV. Our movie for next episode is a listening people's choice, I do believe, if I'm correct. Is it the David Lynch listening people's choice? We do have another David Lynch listening people's choice, but I think it's time to step away from David for a little bit. Um, Bye, Dave. Bye, David, and hello! Another film that involves supernatural elements. Mm, yum. Bartek, we're watching next next week the 2000 film Bedazzled, which Ooh. was recommended by um your... Was it Stepbrother? Oh, yeah, my stepbrother recommended that one, yeah. And uh, we will be watching the Brendan Fraser, Elizabeth Hurley uh, comedy... Supernatural, epic, mm. fantasy-filled, devil gives you a contract film, Bedazzled. Um, it's it's. I've seen it before. I'm just gonna say that now. Yeah, and... I've seen it once, very Ooh. very long time ago, and I've always wanted to rewatch. So, um, prepare yourself to watch that. We'll be talking about that in spoilers and all. So make sure to give it a watch. It's a quick, easy watch. I say that about every movie except for this one. I'm like, it's a fucking nightmare. You have to prep yourself. And you have to find it, too. And you have to find it. Oh, boy. Uh, you can find us on the social medias of Facebook and Twitter, uh, Spit and Polish Presents. You can email us, spitandpolished at gmail.com. You can email us with your uh, your own views on the movies we have discussed. You can tell me, hey, Ryan, you're wrong. David Lynch is a hack fraud, and you're, you're a fucking idiot, and, and so on and so forth. Um, you can also email us through with suggestions for movies that we should cover on the show down the line. Uh, you can rate us and review us on whatever uh, podcast catcher allows it. It would be greatly appreciated. Uh, we love uh, we love that. Like David Lynch with uh, with a quinoa. We just love giving it and making it and having it. Yep. Oh, that's a fucking video you gotta watch, Bartek. There's like a 20-minute video of David Lynch making a quinoa, and it's amazing. It is insanity. Insanity. Um, 20 minutes, that's longer than his short film. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Uh, yeah, f- uh, other than that, listening people, uh, it's been a pleasure talking about this film. Next week, we'll be back if we don't get struck down by a plague. <laughs> because everything's getting shut down here now. Well, well not actually. Well, obviously, the line... This will age t- the episode well, by the way. <laughs> the line to take from this film is obviously the wash your hands. Thing. Wash your hands! <laughs> Fuck you, COVID-19. Laura hasn't washed her hands. Uh, until next time, listening people, remember... Be kind to each other, for I am the arm. <laughs> See ya!